Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. Before we get into the stat line, I want to whet your appetite for January podcasts. December continues to be the best of 2020. This Wednesday, Tim Duncan, Athletic Director for the University of New Orleans, great guy, great interview, excited to bring that one back. But for January, I've lined up multiple talent acquisition executives, a co-founder of one of the biggest sports tech companies ever, a global partnership activation manager in the NBA, a manager of inside sales in the NBA who is hiring staff and gearing up right now. January is going to be huge, so stay tuned to all of that. Another quick heads up, this Wednesday, my good friend, so in two days from now, my good friend and former guest, Chris Grossi, who is Associate Athletic Director for Marketing at Penn State, has asked me to be part of a panel discussion on sports industry resumes. If you're interested in checking it out, connect with Chris on LinkedIn, and he'll share info with you. Tell him you heard it. Tell him, add a note, tell him you heard it here first, and uh, he'll hook you up. So with that in mind, let's get to the stat line. All right, we're taking a bit of a left turn with the stat line today. Data as normal, we'll share that shortly. But instead of highlighting three jobs, we're going to discuss a major news story that will change the future of the sports business. Seriously. First, the data. Three data points helping you understand what's happening in sports employment right now. Number one, there are 16,508 active sports jobs on WorkInSports.com, the leading job board for the sports industry. Now, that's a decline of 1% from last week. Slight drop, pretty much flat. But this time of year, this is the time of year when orgs are gearing up for the next year in January in 2021, getting their planning in order. So no real surprise there. Number two, we did add 1,508 jobs in the last week. So yes, it's a bit of a decline from the prior week. It's down about 10% week over week, but this is part of the normal trend. This is called seasonality. Things change during different seasons of the year. This tends to be a time in the holiday season that you just don't get a lot of new productivity. But number three, that's still an average of 215 fresh new sports jobs every day of the week added to our job board. So again, that's pretty good considering this time of year. And I would be checking in on the job board to see what is out there because 215 new fresh opportunities is good. Expect big jumps in January though. Okay. As I mentioned, instead of giving you three jobs that caught my eye this week, I want to discuss a major change happening in the world of sports that will fundamentally change our business moving forward, and that includes jobs and opportunity, okay? Now, I don't want to be overselling this, but this is really, really big, and I want to make sure we're talking about it. I generally, as you well know, try really hard on this podcast not to talk about specific events or newsy items because it makes the episode content dated and somewhat irrelevant in a month's time. You know, if I talk about the Lakers winning the NBA championship and I spend my time talking about that and you guys tune in three months from now and you listen to that episode because there were some other nuggets in there that were worth listening to. Well, you're like, well, wait, why are we talking about the Lakers? It sounds really uninteresting to me or irrelevant, but this is important and represents a massive sea change in the industry. So even if you're listening to this in a couple months from now, because of the question we're going to answer later on, this is really important. So pay attention. Okay. We're talking about names, images, and likeness legislation. 
I'm going to try to make this as exciting as possible. I'm trying not to make it sound too political or legislative or anything of that nature. We're going to talk in a way that it will hopefully make this interesting and entertaining. Okay, quick primer. Throughout my life and longer, student athletes have not been able to make money off of their name, their image, and their likeness. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about student athletes. They can't hire agents and they can't negotiate endorsement deals with sneaker companies or apparel or merchandise or video games or even summer camps. They can't do social media deals and rake in ad or sponsorship revenue. When it comes to athletes making money and leveraging their brand, student athletes, when it comes to student athletes making money and leveraging their brand, they can't. But schools can. Schools can use a student athlete's name, image, and likeness to make money. So the schools profit, but the student athletes don't. Finally, this is changing. Now, this gets tricky, and there are details and nuances I'm going to leave out for this discussion, because we're going high level here, okay? If you want to learn more, I suggest you visit Sportico.com and check out the great write-up from my legal go-to guy, Michael McCann. If you have questions about sports law, he's the guy to read, okay? So anyway, we're going to take a high-level stab at it, and really the point here isn't just to keep you aware of changing trends, to, but to consider what this means for you as far as career opportunities. This legislation will open up opportunities. So pay attention to that. Okay, where are we? Well, Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi, that's M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, -S 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 -I -P -P -I. I've, I've always wanted to do that on a podcast, is sponsoring the Collegiate Athlete Compensation Rights Act. It's a fancy way of saying, hey, let's make it equitable and fair for college athletes. Wicker's bill would create a federal names, image, and likeness right. Now, that's important because the way things are trending right now with the NCAA approving it and letting the states kind of determine how this will be run, if this gets rolled out state by state or just by the NCAA managing it, there are going to be problems. If you have a federal, everyone plays by the same rules, that's a law. That is a better way to go about this. So, for example, let's imagine California and Florida pass state-sponsored NIL legislation. That's name, images, and likenesses. I'm going to keep saying, I'm going to say NIL from now on. Okay, just stick with me. Let's imagine California and Florida pace, pass, pace, pass state-sponsored NIL legislation that is wide open. We have great access for our athletes to get to gain money, right? But Texas and Alabama passed something a little bit more restrictive. Now, do you think that would change the competitive landscape? Uh, yeah. Student athletes would flock to UCLA and the University of Florida while bypassing Texas and Alabama. Hell, Florida State may even become relevant again. Oh, that was mean. Low blow. I get it. That was totally for some of my FSU friends. Sorry, Jake. I couldn't help it. Okay, back on track. A federal law would ensure consistency and maintain competitive fairness. Now, I see that as a very important detail. Wicker himself says it's unfair for universities and TV networks to earn millions off the NIL of college athletes who are denied such opportunities. And in other breaking news, I agree with a politician. He's right. It is fundamentally unfair and it's finally time to change it, which is great. Two details I want to hit on, okay? The bill proposed by Wicker also stresses the need for college athletes to earn, quote, market value compensation for use of their NIL. Now, why is that important? Because this is different from what the NCAA proposes. The NCAA proposed uh, including NIL, quote, guardrails. 
which to me sounds like they still want to control the marketplace. Allowing the athletes to earn market value is a big distinction and is important in any kind of federal legislation. So that's good. Okay. Also, the second point I want to make, Wicker also added another stipulation, educating college athletes on what NIL actually means. Now, this idea is important and I agree with it because you have a bunch of high school kids who are 17 years old going into college and all of a sudden being able to be approached by agents. We want to prepare them and set them up for success. The idea is important. Wicker's proposed execution, I'm not so sure about. Now, what Wicker proposes is he wants to include a threshold for the student athletes to gain their NIL rights. They have to have completed 12% of their credits required for graduation. Okay, that seems like a very arbitrary number to me. I'm sure there's some research put into it, but let's play this out. How does this look in practice? It means a student athlete wouldn't be NIL eligible Okay, so they wouldn't be able to profit off of their name, image, or likeness until after their first semester of college courses. Essentially, of course, there's some variance there. They could take some classes before they enter in. They could have some classes from high school carry over. But essentially, they won't be NIL eligible until after their first semester of college courses. Now, this seems very arbitrary to me. Uh, I don't think they will be smarter and more able to handle their own marketing deals if they took biology, history of world wars, and trigonometry which I think is what I took most of my freshman year, uh, my first semester freshman year. I'm not exactly remembering my schedule, but that was definitely some stuff I may have taken. Okay. I'm all for educating the student athletes, setting them up for success. That's a good plan. But I think this should be handled like the rookie symposium in the NFL. Incoming student athletes should have to take a one credit NIL focused class the summer before their freshman year. So they have their eligibility right from the get go. Right. Because should Zion Williamson not be able to use NIL likenesses because he hasn't finished 12 percent of his his uh, his college credits for graduating when that it directly impacts the one year he's going to be at school? I mean, that's ridiculous. So I don't like that arbitrary 12% number, but I do like the idea of some education. So set them up for success in advance. They take a one credit NIL focus class the summer before their freshman year. Now, that's just my little take on all of this. More importantly, what does this mean for you? Job opportunities open up wide with this. Athlete marketing. So many more athletes to build their brand and expose themselves to sponsors. They need that kind of management. They need somebody thinking big, bringing the marketing game to the college athlete. What about on the brand side? Product brands like Adidas, video game brands like EA Sports, and others connected to sports already will grow their sponsorship and marketing teams to work with college athletes. But other brands that aren't necessarily sports focused but want to use youthful athletes to build their brand and marketing because what they already have as a product applies to a younger generation. Well, why not get these younger people that are so high profile promoting it? Youthful product brands, food brands, beauty products, and more will start to develop sports-focused departments within their organization. Sports marketing just got broader, right? Tech side, look at former guest Nita Srikant, COO of Influencer. That's what they do. They do NIL marketing for schools and athletes. Go listen to that episode again. It's fantastic. Sports agents, opportunities to recruit and work with agents start earlier than ever, and a huge market opens up too. It's not just the top flight athletes in need of guidance. Now the most interesting and creative athletes 
can stand out too, right? So you don't have to be Trevor Lawrence to leverage your brand and make money this way. And you don't, and it's not just Trevor Lawrence that needs an agent starting earlier. As 538 researched, annual revenue, they've done a lot of projections into what this could mean for college athletes. Annual revenue for college athletes can vary greatly, right? So Haley Cruz, who's a University of Oregon softball player, they predicted could make $117,000 a year with this legislation. And she's a softball player at the University of Oregon. Iowa wrestler Spencer Lee, wrestler, okay, could make an additional $26,000 from from this type of legislation. Oh, and Trevor Lawrence, they postulated he'd make about half a million a year, okay? Now, what does Spencer Lee building his brand do? Right, Spencer Lee, the Iowa wrestler, a guy I had never heard of until I read this article. Well, if he starts building his brand and putting more effort into this, right, what does it do? It helps the schools too. It markets them. It builds their audience. It builds Plus, it builds up some of the smaller sports, wrestling, field hockey, softball, soccer, water polo. The athletes are doing the marketing for the program. They're humanizing the product and making people more interested in it. If the athletes are incentivized to market themselves, they also market the sport and the schools. Literally everyone wins. And that's why I get so excited about this. This is good. This is very good. So pay attention to this. I've gone on long enough about it, but start thinking about what these opportunities mean for you because this is not just like, oh, wow, that's interesting news for me to know. No, this could fundamentally change your employment moving forward. It can open up opportunities. It can change the way you look and approach things. So pay attention to this. And that is a very long version of the stat line. Okay, on to today's question. This is actually my question. And it was sparked after I interviewed Matt Resnick for an upcoming episode of the podcast. Matt spent the last five years as the director of people acquisition for MSG, MSG, Madison Square Garden Company. We're talking Knicks, Rangers, like this dude knows his stuff. It's an incredible interview. I'll be bringing it to you in January. And I don't mean to give away part of the interview, but it was kind of a throwaway one liner that he said that I couldn't get out of my brain all weekend. He threw it out there and it intrigued me. Matt said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I look at tens of thousands of resumes and I don't really like or read cover letters. And that just, I wrote it down. I was like, ooh, I have to explore that deeper. So the question this week from Brian in Pennsylvania is, does anyone still read cover letters? Well, Brian, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. Look, my feelings on this are just a data point of one, right? It's just me which can't be extrapolated out to present, represent the entire, entire workforce. So to get the answer to this question, I need to reach outside my own brain. Thankfully, there's research. Resume Go is a company that provides resume writing services, and they conducted a field experiment involving 7,287 job application submissions. And they conducted a survey of 236 hiring professionals to get down to the bottom of exactly how important cover letters are to the job search process and to be successful in the job search and what employers like about them. So uh, just to give a shout out, I was turned on to this research by a very well-written article by Regina Borsellino at themuse.com. So I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. Attribution is key. I'm not trying to steal anybody else's thoughts. She wrote an article on it. I saw it. I went to the research, and I extrapolated it out into my own thoughts. So let's dig into the research. The big headline, 87% of the 236 hiring professionals they interviewed said, yes, 
they read the cover letter. Now, that's enough right there to say, okay, this is a valuable part of the process. No brainer. Must do it. Give it your all. Cover letters are important. But wait, there's more. When asked, do cover letters materially influence your decisions on who to interview or hire? 65% said yes. They materially influence their decision on who to interview and who to hire. Um, that's big proof. Now, here's my favorite data point. And there was a lot of favorites, actually, in this article. There's a lot of good detail in there. I will link to it in the show notes. If you want to read more, go for it. But I'm giving you all the high points. Here's my favorite. How much time do you spend reading someone's cover letter? Now, 16% said one to five minutes. That's not a lot of people. 0% said over five minutes. 0%. 32% said zero to 10 seconds. So they're skimming, right? And 52% said 10 seconds to one minute. So the majority of people read for about a minute, right? They are either in the zero to 10 or the 10 or 10 seconds to one minute. The vast majority, 84% of people read from read under one minute. That's amazing. So what does that mean though? This sounds like a lot of numbers, so let me break it down for you. You better make your cover letter interesting in the first sentence, first paragraph, or they're moving on. All right, this is so much fun. I like these data points. Next data point. If, and this is really, gosh, this is interesting. Okay. If you are someone who doesn't read cover letters, why don't you read them? This was the question proposed to these 236 people. 236? Was that the right number? Was it 270? No, 236. I was right. Okay. My notes are accurate. Jeez. Why do you guys doubt me so much? I'm just kidding. Now I'm talking to myself. Okay. Um, if you are someone who doesn't read cover letters, why don't you read them to the 236 people that were being interviewed as part of this questionnaire? Okay. 52% of the respondents say cover letters tend to just be a rehash of the resume. Oh my gosh, people. I've been telling you this for years. If you are take, taking your resume and just putting it in paragraph form You are wasting everyone's time. Hiring managers hate this. And if you haven't believed me, believe them. 52% of them said everybody just rehashes their resume in the cover letter. So that's wasted moment. Don't do that. Why do they read cover letters? 59% said because they hope they provide additional insight. So make sure your cover letter provides additional insight into you. Make sure it goes beyond your resume, but we'll get into what you should be doing in a second. Okay. I'll stop with the data. I've listened to podcasts before that talk analytics and data and 13th rank this and 23% that, and it gets confusing after a while. Suffice it to say, recruiters want to read your cover letter. Hiring managers want to read your cover letter. 87% said so, but most of you are doing it wrong. So they skim it and they move on. So what should you do? Number one, every single time, write a specific cover letter for the job you are applying to. You may have a base version of your cover letter, but put some effort into customizing for the specific job you're applying for. Applications, get this, applications that included cover letters tailored specifically to the job at hand had a 53% higher callback rate than applications with no cover letter at all right? So your control, they sent out no cover letter. 
those that did include a tailored specific to the job at hand cover letter, 53% higher callback rate. Again, all signs point to cover letters matter and specific ones matter even more. Number two, tell me a story that starts to give me additional insight into who you are as a person, how you work, your drive, your ambition, and relate it to this job opportunity. Give me something on you. I'm reading the cover letter because I wanted to unveil more about you. I want to learn more about you. So give me something. Give me something. Number three, hook me early. If your first sentence is something like, I started in the sports industry in 1996 at CNN Sports Illustrated, and it was a really great experience. Already, I'm bored. And that's me. I can get this info on your resume. I don't need to read it in a paragraph form. Hook me with something. Give me something interesting. Get me interested in you. Number four, your cover letter can be a tool to better explain you. If you're transitioning careers, have a gap on your resume, if you're applying from out of the area, if you have a personal connection at the organization, use this space to inform the hiring team about this information. Number five, focus on quality and pay attention to detail. Another data point, 73% of respondents said a poorly written cover letter reflects very poorly on whether they will escalate this person, this candidate, to the next phase in the process. Think about that for a second. You read someone's cover letter and it's poorly written, that is a pretty bad impression and doesn't scream out, hire me, I'm great. Take the time to write it well and give me all those details. So write a good cover letter. It matters. Thanks for the question, Brian. Great job. And thank you for listening. Seriously, this was an episode with a lot of meat on it. I got excited in there. I think there's a lot of things happening that are exciting in the sports industry. We're coming back. It's actually snowing out right now at my house. I'm in the spirit. I'm feeling good. Be safe, everybody. Still wear a mask and let all this information about name, image, and likeness, about cover letters, all this stuff is geared towards helping you in your job search. So let's get after it. 2021 is your year. I swear it. It's my year, too. I'm taking it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week.